Heads up, this episode includes adult language, mentions of drug abuse, and spoilers. In the early 1960s, a young farm kid named Roger Burton was living in, let's say, not the flashiest part of the UK. In a little village, actually, in, in the Midlands of England called Burton Overy, which was bizarre because my surname is Burton also. But it was, yeah, I mean, obviously farm life and village life was very traditional, shall we say. Nothing more than kind of barn dances and village hall hops, you know? But then he started going to school nine miles north. In a place that sounds like a different planet. The city of Leicester. And Leicester at that time was actually the richest city in Europe because of its hosiery and boot and shoe industry. Lots of garments were made there. Working kids who'd grown up during 15 years of war and rationing could finally indulge in stuff that was international and new, like they bought coveted records from the USA. Mail ordering, you know, R&B and soul, and they in turn started little pop-up clubs everywhere. Clubs in cafes and the back rooms of pubs and so on. And I used to go to these clubs. And one night at one of them, he got his mind blown. There was a little group of kids who were probably a little bit older than me, started to get up and dance. And they were wearing a very distinct style. Straight leg trousers, button down shirts, and you know, those shiny mohair suits that they wore and Italian knits and wearing kind of formal clothes, but in like a casual way, which was very new. Yeah, for decades, young British men basically dressed like their dads, even went to the same tailor. But here were these mostly working class dudes decking themselves out like the cool cats on their R&B albums or from French and Italian movies. Austerity was over, they wanted modern life, which meant dressing nothing like their dads or even, Roger noticed, like each other. Going to a club at night in the dark, you would spot in the distance maybe a suit with a detail on it. You'd think, oh, he's got like six buttons on his cuff. That's a new thing. Or the vent in his jacket might be extremely long. Just all those little things that made it special. There was something that really appealed to me about being an individualist. He was officially hooked on the sharp, ever-evolving look and lifestyle called mod. So this was kind of like, you know, bright lights, big city. I wanted to be part of it and it affected me so much. I mean, I spent every penny I had on clothing. It just like, wow, this is a whole new world that I really want to get involved with. And he did. In fact, 20 years later, he's one of the guys they asked to suit up the cast of a mod movie called Quadrophenia which at a time when a lot of kids were slashing their clothes to ribbons, gave them a blueprint for rebelling in style. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome back to the Movie Podcast. Movie's the streaming service that champions great cinema. On this show, we tell you the stories behind great cinema. This is season five. We're calling it Tailor Made. Because every week we're diving into a movie that captured the fashion look of an era, and then we're figuring out what that look meant to the culture that spawned it, the people who rocked it, and the audience who watched it on screen. And Quadrophenia meant a lot. It is a movie about a controversial corner of the mod world circa 1964 that entranced a certain breed of UK kid when it hit screens in 1979. We saw Quadrophenia 
and it gave us a template for life. That is esteemed mod DJ, historian, and keeper of the flame, Eddie Piller. And I talked to him, Quad's director, Frank Rodham, and many more about what made this movie a mod Bible for everyone from working stiffs to fashion superstars. There was a whole mod collection where I opened the show and Linda Evangelista came out on a Vespa. In fact, thanks in part to this movie, this is one fashion I dabble in. I will rock Fred Perry shirts with Harrington jackets, and I've known it to look with a history, but I had no idea how complicated. So doff your trilby hat and loosen that thin tie as we try to rip open the seams of Mod and Quadrophenia. Last September, I visited the beachside city of Brighton on the southern edge of England. It boasts a famous rocky beach, a ridiculously charming 125-year-old pier, one of the world's oldest cinemas called the Duke of York. But top of my sightseeing list was an alleyway off a shopping road. And here we are, Quadrophenia Alley. That's what people call it, the location of Quadrophenia's most iconic scene where two mods make love while a riot rages on the street outside. I definitely was not the first to visit. Just a narrow little alley. You wouldn't think much of it or think that it was anything special except that the walls are covered with graffiti from mods who have made the pilgrimage here. Pilgrimage is the right word. For a lot of people, this is obviously a shrine. People writing RIP to their lost friends or relatives, RIP Helen Cartwright, I'm assuming fellow mods. Somebody here wrote, it's a way of life, with the mod target drawn underneath it, kind of the symbol of the mod movement. But the walls are covered. My guess is that they must paint this over every now and then, because all of these inscriptions, people have dated them, and they're mostly from like 2023. If they didn't paint over this every now and then, it would probably just be like black with writing and graffiti. This is how much Quadrophenia still casts a spell. For a lot of folks, it's a touchstone for mod culture 35 years after its release. So I was surprised when I dug into mod history to learn the movie's story and fashions were pulled from a year some mods don't exactly celebrate, 1964 into 65. By which time mod is, in, in real terms, had come to an end, really. Paolo Hewitt is a former features writer for the music mag's NME and Melody Maker and co-author of, among many other books, The A to Z of Mod. Mod started really late 50s in London. It was then the modernist movement. It wasn't mod at the beginning, it was modernist. People referred to, I'm a modernist. They referred to themselves as modernist. They dug new art for the modern post-war world. Beat poetry, Jack Kerouac. And they listen to modern jazz. They like Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, those kind of guys. And they like dressing like those guys. That Ivy League look, button-down collars, tie, suit, looking very smart. By 61 or 62, there was a shift. The smart modern sound and style to be into was American R&B. You just heard about that a minute ago. But mod was still niche, an underground culture of cool kids, mostly in London, plus a few elsewhere, popping uppers so they could dance all night. And then in 1963, Red Diffusion Television over here started a show called Ready, Steady, Go. What they wanted were bands on with an audience to dance to those bands. So they went round the clubs in London and they got all these mods to come and be on the show. 
But what that did was to nationalise mod so that kids in Leeds and Manchester and Liverpool could suddenly see what these kids in London were wearing. Well, each week we like to have a special look at fashion, so we'll kick off that way this week. First of all, hairstyles. So suddenly this kind of very elite youth cult became a national phenomenon. For folks like Roger Burton, sounds like it was pretty exciting at first. Everybody was like, you know, all my friends were all really hooked on it. It was like, you know, the weekend starts here, Friday night, six o'clock, ready, steady, go. And of course, they featured all those American bands. So um, I was able to see them. But then he noticed things starting to change. Where the modernists had been about looking like no one else, suddenly there were all these newbies looking alike especially after the arrival of a cheap, sleek vehicle from Italy that would become an iconic mod accessory. I remember as early as 1963, this kid turning up with a, a silver Vespa GS scooter, dressed head to toe in white, in, I think he had a white suit on, white shirt, he even had white hair as well. He just looked incredible, but he had on an American Parker, like, over the top of it. Well, I'd seen these American Parkers in surplus shops, but I'd never actually seen one being worn as a fashion thing. But he looked amazing, and he explained it as being, you know, a cheap form of being able to protect his white clothing on his scooter because it covered it up uh, from the rain and the wind and so on, dirt and so on. So, super cool and super practical. But then... It was everywhere. Probably even within six months, all of a sudden I started to see scooters around the town and kids wearing parkas, and it became like a plague, you know. This was the most infamous mod look of 1964, out of the underground, roaring down roads all over the UK. Still sharp, but more populist. Frankly, more like the stuff I wear today. And for some original mods, less special. It became like a uniform, parkas and jeans and Fred Perry shirts and stuff. That to me was just jumping on the bandwagon. And it felt like, you know, the secret was out. Soon this new breed not only got disdain from OG modernists, but from the rest of the country. When a faction of these guys scootered to the seaside town of Clacton over Easter 1964, and ended up going on a minor rampage. And what happened, as far as police are concerned? Uh, they came into the town and finding not much else to do, they uh, committed several acts of wanton and purposeless damage. News crews breathlessly reported fights had busted out between the mods and another subculture, biker types called rockers. The story sounded pretty exciting, so when summer hit, aggro guys from both crews headed again to beach towns like Brighton looking for more trouble. Brighton did not go scot-free. Before the holiday was over, 76 mods and rockers were arrested. In retrospect, these were probably minor skirmishes, blown out of proportion by media into a moral panic. It really has come to something when people can't take a short holiday without the threat of long-haired youngsters with knives indulging in an orgy of hooliganism. Paolo Hewitt says, didn't matter. By 1965, for a lot of Brits, this was the face of mod. They've got parkers and scooters, and you had all that stuff about Brighton and beating up rockers. No modernist would have ever have, you know, fighting, you're going to ruin your clothes. Why would you go <laughs> fighting? I mean, it was, everything was anathema, but it just grown so big that this is what was happening under the term mod. Modernist now gone, it was now mod. Now, if some of this sounds a little snobbish, well, Roger Burton admits as much. I mean, there was a lot of elitism going on, let's put it like that. But this wave of mods got the last laugh 
because years later they and their style would become immortalized in music and then on screen, thanks to a major British institution who felt he understood them. Pete Townsend. Quadrophenia, you probably already know, first took shape as a concept album from Townsend's band The Who. They had actually started out in 1964, playing, quote, maximum R&B for an audience full of mods. But by 1973, The Who had become prog rock superstars, which is when... I felt that the band had lost its way. That's Townsend from an interview in 2011. I, I felt the band needed to look back at its roots, and I thought the best way to do that was to look back at you know, a young man who would be, if you like, a kind of a, um, a model of a, a combination of all of our boy fans from that period. Namely, a parka-wearing kid, circa 64, born into a gray country, traumatized by war, and looking for some spiritual direction in a tribe. Quadrophenia is the story of Jimmy a teen who feels split into four personalities. Not mere schizophrenia, quadrophenia. He's a rebel, a romantic, a madman, a hypocrite. In the first track, I Am the Sea, we hear musical themes for each, like voices in his head. The grown-ups in his life are too sad or clueless to help him. His day job as a janitor is a dead end. So when the song Cut My Hair, he sings about throwing in his lot with the mods. Why should I care if I have to cut my hair? I got to move with the fashion or be outcast. Suiting up with this army of kids feels glorious, at least in the moment. He pops pills with the mods. He joins them for a beach rumble with the rockers. A gang of nearly a thousand youths entered the Grand Hotel in pursuit of two leather-clad rockers. But as he gets more cynical about the regular world, Jimmy also gets the feeling being a mod is no escape. Especially when he sees a respected top mod, an ace face, working a lowly gig at a beach hotel. Oh boy, I gotta get running now. Oh It's the last straw. Sick of everything, Jimmy steals a boat, sails it out to a rock, waits to be swept away by waves. But instead, ends the record drenched in a purifying thunderstorm, suddenly enlightened, and accompanied by a song anyone who's ever listened to classic rock radio knows. So the album is like a, a beautiful sweeping opera about an 18-year-old. That is Frank Rodham, the guy who'd eventually direct the Quadrophenia film. The emotions are very powerful. The likes and dislikes are very powerful. It's also about fighting and sex and taking drugs. So it was all there on the original album. And it was a beautifully made album shot with beautiful black and white cover with four sides to it and beautiful still photography. In other words, it was begging to be made into a movie. 
And in a lot of ways, Rodham was just the filmmaker to do it. Cordofinia is about an 18-year-old in 1964. And I was 18 in 1964 myself. So it was it was perfect era for me to film. But he also came to the material as a kind of sympathetic outsider. Strangely enough, I was a band the bomb guy, you know, nuclear disarmament. I, I wanted to be a baby beatnik. So when I was about 16, I... I lied about my age and was traveling a great deal, hitchhiking around. And then I came back one day from a trip, one of my trips, and the whole town had changed. Suddenly everyone was a mod. <laughs> the whole style had changed. My mate suddenly had very short hair, very neat clothes. Even though that I was like long-haired and a bit of a beatnik, I was best man at at least two mod weddings. <laughs> what is the what does the groom and bride wear at a mod wedding? A very smart clothes, you know? I mean really sharp. So when he got asked to do the Quadrophenia movie in 1978, he knew well the world he'd be recreating. And he also knew what it wasn't gonna look or sound like. I didn't want to make just a copy of Tommy as glorious as it was and as much as I love Ken Russell. Yeah, in 1975, director Ken Russell had turned The Who's first rock opera, Tommy, into a top 10 box office hit. It's a gorgeous, lurid, over-the-top musical. The kind of flick where Elton John sings Pinball Wizard while wearing a giant pair of three-foot-wide combat boots. Iconic, but that vibe was not Frank Rodham's thing. I've never actually said to Marion yet, Roy, on so-and-so date, we will get married. I've never said that to Marion yet. He actually got to start directing hit Cinema Verite TV documentaries, including what was more or less the UK's first reality show. I did a series called The Family. She's either a liar or you are. I, I sort of live with this particular family and their four children, their lodger and their 50 pet birds. And I'm, I was the director on a series and we did 13 episodes. And then after that, I made a documentary about a, a young boy who was an arsonist. What do you think about it? Do you think it's a good thing to do? Mm-hmm. To me it is, but to other people it's not. Because people don't like campfires set all, all over the place. Mm. He was nearly 11 years old. He's now 60, but I still speak to him three or four times a week. Drawing a parallel to this movie, you know, unsettled kid who's fractured mentally in some way. You think you brought some of that to Quadrophenia? Yeah, I think I was very influenced by Quatre Sanku, by Truffaut, 400 Blows as it's called, and also Kes by Ken Loach. They were about disenfranchised kids who were like, you know, wanting and a little bit, a little bit sad, you know, and the same characters in Quadrophenia, if you like. So this was Rodham's take on Pete Townsend's sweeping rock opera. He'd make it a bittersweet kitchen sink drama with the grit of a documentary. It was gonna feel real. And in a flick about mods, that had to start with the clothes. Courtesy of one, Roger Burton. Since his mod youth in Leicester, Burton had become a fashion pro. With his partner, Jack English, he had a boutique in London and amassed a trove of vintage wear. In 78, they were selling it from a stall on London's Portobello Road, and one day... It was a Saturday, and I phoned up my partner to see how he'd got on. And he said, oh, it's been really interesting, actually. He said, "Um, this guy walked by, and uh, he noticed that we'd got some 60s clothing for sale, and he asked uh, if we had any more. So I said, yes, why? And he said, oh, it's because we're just about to start a movie set in the 60s about mods, and would we be able to supply them? Of course, the movie was Quadrophenia. The guy was Frank Rodham, who lived nearby. And his first assignment for Burton, ironically, 
was to find parkas for the dozens of actors and extras who were going to be reenacting a Brighton Beach rumble on the first week of shooting. I think it was like 150 parkas they wanted, American parkas. And of course, you know, I said, yeah, no problem. But then I found out that we could get what they call the shell, which is the actual coat, but most of them didn't have a hood. And, and it was like, well, why haven't they got hoods? Turns out the UK government had just decreed army surplus stores couldn't sell military clothes unless they were distressed somehow. So then we found a lot of hoods in Holland, actually. And so we got those shipped over and we had a, like a team of women sewing the hoods back onto the coats. Meanwhile, a lot of the suits the actors wore in those beach melees were actual pristine vintage items from the era that sadly also ended up getting pretty distressed. During the fight scenes, sleeves got ripped off jackets and sweaters got torn apart. And then of course, <laughs> going in the sea in a mohair suit, it ain't gonna survive. It was heartbreaking, but you know, there you go. <laughs> is there a specific piece that you remember being like, oh man, this one's being sacrificed to the sea, this is terrible? <laughs> Not really, no. It Basically, we were out on the road most of the time trying to locate stuff to replenish what had been lost or destroyed or or even stolen, actually. Stolen by who? Well, the, the, the cast. <laughs> Not everyone in the cast was so keen to nick their mod gear, though. Because you got to remember, this movie was being shot in 1978. A year, says Frank Rodham, when a lot of UK kids were obsessed with a very different fashion style. What you had, you had the punk era. And punk was very influential. You know, these outside clothes, they, they did away with the tight structure. It, was ve it had a big impact on everything in England, from furniture to architecture and prints and design, everything. You're about to hear just how big an impact. It's a story Frank told me about the guy who played Jimmy's best pal Dave, actor Mark Wingett. He was 16 years old and he was a complete punk, but he was such a good young actor and I thought he was perfect for the role. We convinced him to be become a mod. And then... There was an incident that took place at the first week of shooting. He'd been causing a bit of problem in the hotel they were all staying in in Brighton. And the, the assistant director spoke very harshly to him. And he said, I'm leaving. Now, I'd already done a week's filming, couldn't get him to stay. And I think, oh my God, this is going to destroy the film. And then I remembered that Johnny Rotten had given me a shirt that belonged to Sid Vicious. And as Johnny told me at the time, Sid had come round to attack him for some reason and get annoyed with him of something. He'd come round to his house in Fulham and Johnny had hit him with the blunt end of an axe. <laughs> and Sid Vicious threw up onto his own shirt. <laughs> and when Dave said he was going to leave, I said, you stay, you can have this shirt. It was not only belonged to Sid Vicious and he's got his puke on it, but it was actually you know, given to me by Johnny Rotten. And that was it. That turned the whole meeting around. The deal was done. He was so pleased to stay and get the shirt, and I was so pleased. About a week later, his mother washed it. Oh, no. And I don't think he ever spoke to her again. <laughs> you see the power of fashion on and offset. Yes, yes, indeed. By the way, the reason Rodham had that shirt was because he'd originally planned to cast Johnny Rotten as Jimmy to make the movie relevant for the punk crowd. Turns out, he was better off without him because a growing group of UK kids were looking for something other than the shirt off Sid Vicious's back. Quadrophenia gets dropped into the middle of a mod revival. Coming up in just a minute, stay with us.
All right, everybody. Mubi is the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. Movies from around the world, from first-time filmmakers to legendary auteurs. Any movie that's excellent, basically, we want to bring it to you. And I want to mention something extra excellent that's in theaters now and coming for subscribers in the UK, Germany, and many other countries starting March 1st. That would be Priscilla, the latest film from Sofia Coppola, of course, the iconic director of Lost in Translation and The Virgin Suicides. This is Coppola's take on the life of Priscilla Presley and her romance with Elvis Presley from the 50s into the 70s. And I know there is no dearth of movies about Elvis, but this one is centered on a woman and it's made by a woman. So its take on the whole king of rock and roll world is like no other. Fascinating movie. Also, if you're familiar with Sofia Coppola's films, you will not be surprised to learn the period costumes are gorgeous. You'll actually hear us speaking to Coppola about that and much more in the final episodes of this season. So subscribe to Mubi at Mubi.com so you don't miss Priscilla when it hits the platform March 1st. You will find a list of the countries where it'll be available and where it is currently in theaters in the show notes of this episode. Speaking of which, let's get back to it. So it's December 1978, shooting has wrapped on Quadrophenia, and in London, a 14-year-old kid who would soon be one of the movie's biggest fans was busy getting way into the punk scene. It was such a powerful thing on the streets of, of London. Eddie Piller now runs the record label Acid Jazz, DJs at fests like Glastonbury, and just published a memoir called Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances about his youth in UK subcultures. I was going to punk gigs regularly. You know, I thought I was quite a good little punk, but the end came for me at a Buzzcocks gig where people were just taking the piss out of me. Yeah, some older kids took one look at Eddie's fluffy mohair sweater and called him the worst punk insult imaginable. A poser. Well, I thought, sod that, I don't need that in my life. And then I saw the jam in December uh, 1978 and, and became a mod. Went out the next day and bought a Parker. This is the modern world. The jam, a band that was punk in its fury and energy, but whose frontman Paul Weller had been taking his style cues from classic mod since the early 70s, when most British teens just weren't. I've seen Paul Weller's school books, and they are full of little drawings of scooters and, and the Who logos. You know, everything that man has done has been for mod. Every decision he makes in his life, the books he reads, the socks he wears, he's done for mod. He's just the mod. Where a lot of punk acts wore shredded clothes and bondage gear, Weller's band wore vintage suits and ties. And to Pillar, the music had a kind of modernist attitude that felt different too. Punks were nihilistic. Smash it up, tear it down. Mods, on the other hand, especially around the jam, were, well, the opposite of that. He started singing about, what's the point in saying destroy? We want a new life for everyone. In this is the modern world, you know, and and even the song titles. This is the modern world. This is the modern world. We don't need no one to tell us what's right or wrong. You know, we wanted to create. We wanted to build. We wanted smart clothes. Everything that they weren't, we wanted to be. It was so different that we had to do it. We had to be there. And and I saw the jam 53 times. Eddie was not alone. Around London, mod bands sprung up in the jam's wake, aiming for a similar attitude and that same dapper look, which, lucky enough for their mostly working-class teen audience, was easy to pull off. Most of the clothes were secondhand. 
because don't forget, the 60s was only 12 years ago, you know, and there were plenty of second-hand suits lying around that you could just pick up for a pound. So the look was very cheap when it started. Around the same time came the so-called two-tone music scene, multiracial bands reviving the ska sound of the 60s. They also dressed in trim throwback suits. And the two-tone thing was seen as a very much as a mod movement at first, you know, for the first year. Music mags like NME heralded the dawn of a mod revival. And right then, in a moment of perfect synchronicity, Quadrophenia premiered in London, summer 1979. Now, before I tell you how it was received, you should probably hear something Pete Townsend said in a BBC interview 30 years later. It was right before the debut of the Quadrophenia musical, and interviewer Andy Breer asked Pete what kind of audience might come to see it. Right in the front row will be old blokes of about my age wearing parkas, and next to them will be a young bloke of about my son's age, also wearing a parka. And the old bloke will be telling the young bloke what is right and wrong with our show. That's my nightmare. Oh, no. No, no, we never did that. No, that dancing, that's not how we did it. I would never have worn shoes like that. Oh, my God. Yeah, mod fashion is all about sweating the details. And in 1979, some thought Quadrophenia didn't sweat them enough. I don't know. I've got to be careful what I say here. Um, including the movie's own outfitters, Roger Burton and his partner, Jack English. You know, people like Jimmy and, you know, some of the rest of them, they look great. But, I mean, I remember going to see the premiere and Jack was completely horrified. I mean, I think he ended up walking out of the film. He was just like, oh my God, this is a shambles. Like background extras who dressed in their own totally era inappropriate gear. Or more egregious, the character of the Ace Face, Jimmy's mod icon, played by a young Gordon Sumner, a.k.a. Sting. Specifically, his outerwear. You know, he was meant to be the ultimate, you know, the pinnacle, the face, and to look the best. And his leather coat might have been the right color, but it was that was a 1970s leather coat. <laughs> I think we had. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you had some input, right? What did you want to dress him in? Yeah, we had a we had a suede coat, a red suede coat. That, mm. Yeah, the production just wouldn't accept it. You know, mods didn't wear red suede coats. I mean, we know for a fact that they did because a dear friend of ours used to wear one. Paolo Hewitt says none other than Paul Weller disdained the film for similar reasons. And he says some viewers noticed even more unforgivable flaws. Do you know what the funny... I spoke to Frank Rodham. Do you know what he told me the funniest one was? What? There's a bit where Jimmy goes to the supermarket to see Leslie Ash. She's at the till and she's swiping stuff through. Groceries. Yeah. And she swipes through this tin of hot chocolate, Cadbury's hot chocolate. And Frank said he got a letter saying... Dear, dear Mr. Rodden, your movie is completely flawed. The tin of hot chocolate that particular make wasn't made until 1974. <laughs> but if Eddie Piller and his crew of Mod Revivalists noticed any of that, they absolutely did not care. It was August, August 79, a local place in Woodford, the ABC in Woodford Cinema. 30 or 40 of us went to Young Mods to see it. And I, I never forget seeing it the first time. It was so important. 
to me and to my friends. It changed everything. Especially when it came to clothes. As much as OG modernist dissed some of Quad's fashion choices, Eddie says the movie showed him there was more to mod than cheap suits and parkas. All right, darling. Biggest example, the scene where Jimmy, played by the brilliant Phil Daniels, brags to his crush Leslie Ash about the sweet outfit he's getting, tailor-made. Yeah, what's it like? Handsome. Three buttons, side vents, 16-inch bottoms, dark brown. Up till that time, we were dressing very much secondhand, going down the East End markets on a Sunday morning and buying clothes. After that, we'd think about getting suits made or, you know, going down the tailors and paying weekly so you could save up for the suit. You're going to be one of the faces down there, then, are you? What do you mean, going to be? I am one of the faces. That's when more differentiated... Everyone looked the same, but after Quadrophenia, they didn't. They looked original and and different. In fact, it sounds like it started to feel a lot like Roger Burton's young modhood in Leicester, a sartorial arms race. I mean, it was getting more and more ridiculous, actually. People were wearing suits from a tailor's that, that had butterfly cuffs and step-downs, we called them, on the bottom of trousers, where the back of the suit was longer than the front, so it fell down the back of your shoes without leaving a crease, and, you know, just mad, obsessive things. Meanwhile, like Ready, Steady, Go a generation earlier, Quadrophenia took the revival national. I think the release of the movie sort of caught a moment in the mood. Ali Catterall is a filmmaker and co-author of Your Face Here, one of the first books ever written about British cult movies. There was already a kind of burgeoning mod scene um, that I think the movie really sort of landed, made a huge impact and then radiated out of London into the sort of regional UK. Definitely scooter clubs, which had never died out in parts of the country, attracted a new wave of kids in Quad's wake. And Frank Rodham says it didn't hurt that as subcultures went, mod was more practical. Punk was much more revolutionary than the mod movement. But the thing about punk, it wasn't for everybody. Not everybody wanted to dress like a punk or could pull it off, you know, or behave like a punk. I always think about American sport like football and basketball. You have to be like six foot six to play basketball and you have to be 300 pounds to play American football. Punk was like that. Yes, you could have a safety pin through your nose, but you couldn't go and work in a bank like that. You couldn't go down the factory like that. It was quite strangely elitist punk. So I think, you know, with Quad, I think it did help the transition back to sort of modism. It was happening so fast, you know, in the space of that year, from from January to December in 1979, there went from being maybe 500 mods in the country to being hundreds of thousands of mods. It, It was really strange. Strange, but not really a surprise. Even before the movie came out, mod revivalists figured it would blow things up. You don't end up being a mod, just another thing after being oh, a new... Well, you know, Quadrophenia's going to end all that, isn't it? What do you think will happen when it's It's going to commercialise it and you're going to get all the shops like the punk shops and all the little kiddies following on. It's going to end it all, you know? I mean, it's, it's getting too big now. And Ali Catterall says in London, sure enough, the cash-in began. Yeah, mod, mod clubs will start to open, taking inspiration directly from Quadrophenia. Um, and Carnaby Street had started opening sort of mod shops and selling parkers that looked like duvet covers. But big brands were in on the action too. Uh, so this is a 1980 newsletter. It's called Levi's International. Tracy Panic is the in-house historian at Levi Strauss. The company's 501 jeans were coveted by 60s mods, and they are worn by basically everyone in Quadrophenia. 
not by accident. So this is 1980, and it's a profile of one of our employees in London. His name was Howie, and this is what they describe. Howie put his talents to work on the new mod revival in the UK with the release of the Who films Quadrophenia. Levi's tied in with the film by providing the cast with Levi's 501s and putting point-of-sale material in record stores and movie theaters. Mm. This, says Howie, resulted in a re-release of the 501 gene in the UK to meet the new demand. Every teenage craze has one thing in common. There's money in it for somebody. And then there's The Who, who joined up with a London fashion outfit called Suchi to debut a Quadrophenia clothing line at London's Lyceum Ballroom a few weeks after the movie debuted. Celebrities like John Entwistle and Kenny Jones of The Who are here because their money financed the film. On the BBC show Nationwide, Entwistle made no bones about what that fashion show was all about. Well, if there's going to be a new mod culture, why shouldn't we partake in some way? Or is it just purely a commercial venture? As far as I know, yes. But the gold rush wasn't going to last. Right now, a band from South London, they're called The Chords, and this is their current single. It's called Maybe Tomorrow. In January 1980, The Chords cracked the UK Top 40 with this jam-like hit. Sometimes I just They were one of a few mod acts to hit the charts in the wake of Quadrophenia. That summer, the Purple Hearts actually hit number 60 with a tune called Jimmy, an ode to the movie's hero. And then all of a sudden, it all stopped. By the end of 1981, it was pretty much finished. What, what happened, do you think, that ended that first wave of the mod revival like what made it it's a good question it was uh, absolute vilification by uh, the music press the music press did not like mods because it was a street movement from the streets whereas the favorite movement of the music press and media they were all university graduates was post-punk you know, the Mekons, Gang of Four. It was an intellectual movement. And reviews of bands started being about, you know, scooters. Get on your little scooter and ride away kind of thing. And in the end, they did. But Paolo Hewitt thinks Mod was just one of a slew of trends Britain's pop culture industry hyped and discarded in the 80s for a different set of cynical reasons. If you take The Enemy, The Enemy was kind of struggling and then punk came along. And they got onto it, much to their credit, very early. And by 1977, they were selling 250,000 copies a week, right? That's a lot, a lot of money being poured in. And everybody realised that there was a lot of money to be had if you got in on the right thing. And that's why all these movements started sprouting up, like the mod revival, the ska revival, the this revival, the that revival. It just all came up. By his telling, Mod got its 15 minutes, and then it was on to the next subculture. In any case... The jam split up in December 82, and with them, Mod was finished. And I thought that would be the end. It wasn't. Yeah, like a brood of well-dressed cicadas, Mod has a way of laying low and then blooming out of nowhere. And since 79, every flowering seems to involve quadrophenia. Please join me in welcoming from England, Blur. Like, I still remember in 1993 seeing the band Blur play their song Chemical World on a brand new talk show called Late Night with Conan O'Brien. 
frontman Damon Albarn was wearing a slim three-button suit. My first glimpse of the mod-inspired mid-90s Britpop explosion. And then what do you know, on the title cut of their next album, Park Life, there was Quadrophenia's Jimmy himself, actor Phil Daniels, contributing a running monologue. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as... And the very next year, 1995, with Britpop in full swing and UK bands like Oasis sashaying around in parkas, Mod returned to the fashion runway. There was a whole Mod collection where I opened the show and Linda Evangelista came out on a Vespa. That is superstar designer Anna Sui. She has always been inspired by Mod and 60s UK bands. And a formative moment came just as she was starting out. Circa 1979. Oh, sure. I I went to the New York premiere of Quadrophenia. It was on 8th Street, and it was, I believe, the premiere because Sting was there. I remember he came walking through the movie lobby, and everyone's, the face, the face. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that movie specifically, like, gave you a new way of seeing or, like, sort of crystallized the look for you in any way? Oh, yeah, definitely. It, It... gave me a new vantage point in looking at Maude because I had only seen Maude through record covers and music magazines. And suddenly, like, I see the everyday Maude, those Army, Navy parkas, like the fishtail jackets and, you know, and that whole scene in Brighton, you know, like, so it was just, it was a whole new thing to me. And for evidence, the movie still resonates today. Just pay a visit to Brighton and step into Quadrophenia Alley. Not just the place full of mod graffiti, the shop right next door. Um, let me ask you your name. Uh, Paul Bowen. And you, what do you do? Uh, I work in Quadrophenia Alley store. When Paul Bone and his partner John Lasseter opened the place nine years ago, it was called Bone Clothing. The plan was to sell the same menswear as their other shop 15 miles away. Italian suits, that sort of thing. They got no buyers. And um, we stood here all day taking no money. But we were completely aware of the alleyway and what it represented. People were stopping to have their photograph taken by the alleyway, and uh, we thought, well, perhaps there's something in it for us. They decided to stock one of the staples of the Quadrophenia look, Fred Perry-style polo shirts striped around the collar and sleeves. We purchased 120 Lambretta tipped polo shirts. They came in on the Thursday, and I was in the other store on a Saturday afternoon, and they called me up and they said, you know those polo shirts? I said, yeah. They said, they've all gone. I said, well, all of them? They said, every single one. Realizing they were onto something, they cleared the Italian suits out of the shop. Restocked it with all this mod-type clothing, and we doubled the turnover in the first year. And uh, we realized then that we did underestimate the popularity of the movie. And to be fair, as a sometimes mod myself, I can't quite understand why I'm so into this movie. For reasons that I put to Ali Catterall, who, by the way, has made his own pilgrimage to Quadrophenia Alley. I've graffitied it myself, to be honest. I actually have a question for you about this. Okay. This movie has become such a mod Bible that mods come from everywhere to graffiti this alley, but the movie's actually not that, you know, high on mods. <laughs> in fact, the, the original concept is basically saying, you know, this is a dead end. You won't find yourself in this army. You won't find yourself in a mob. Why do you think it resonated with mods in the late 70s and with mods today when that's its message? I think <laughs> I think that comes out of Pete Townsend's inherent 
depressive cynicism, really, that kind of attitude. If you remove Townsend's cynicism from it, the film in itself is, is one of the most joyful, exuberant, exhilarating avocations of, of, of youth and what it means to be young uh, and in love and uh, being off your head and not knowing your place, not knowing who you are, but slowly, slowly clawing away towards finding those truths. If you watch the movie carefully, Jimmy, he's walking away from the clifftop at the end of that movie. He's facing a new dawn, if you like, literally a new dawn, in which hopefully he's going to discover himself. And I think modern mods took some optimism away from that during what was quite definitely a very pessimistic era. And optimism, I think, is actually the essence of mod. And maybe why the look never really goes away. It might seem nostalgic or a throwback, but what it feels like when I wear it is hopeful. Staying sharp even when everything's a shambles and looking forward to the modern world. That's the movie podcast for this week. Follow us this season for more stories about film and fashion. Next time, double Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter tells us about the street style she dreamed up for Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Both timeless and not so timeless. Shua Lee's character, we gave her a swatch watch that she put on her ankle. We thought we set a trend with it, but it didn't set any trends. Follow us so you don't miss it. Meanwhile, this episode of the Movie Podcast was written, hosted, and edited by me, Rico Galliano. Kira McEniff is our producer. Beth Schiff is our booking producer. Stephen Colon mastered it. Music by Martin Ostwick. The additional track Blueprint by Jazar came courtesy of Tribe of Noise. Extra thanks this week to David Harper, Michael Gino, Melis Uslu, and Ali Catterall. Ali is co-director of the new documentary Scala about the legendary London cinema of the same name. You can see it now in UK theaters and then go back and check out our episode about the Scala back in season two. This show is executive produced by me along with John Baranichea, F.A. Eccarell, Daniel Kasman, and Michael Taka. If you love the show, tell the world by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Let them know we're something special. Also, if you've got questions, comments, or if you are at this moment wearing a parka and itching to tell me everything I got wrong about mod, email us at podcast at And of course, to stream the best in cinema, including some of the films we talk about on this very podcast, just head over to movie.com to start watching. Thanks for listening. Be safe. And may all your movie outings be worth dressing up for. Mm-hmm.